Coming up on this week's show, we talk preserving Flash games. Playing Panzer Dragoon in VR. And we talk to Atari legend Al A. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 218. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Now, every year on this show, around Christmas time, we do a little thing called the Retro Hour annual Christmas Super Quiz. And recently, being spending a lot of time indoors with the family, watching TV, eating snacks, feels a bit like we should maybe put the Christmas tree up again. Kind <laughs> of feel like, why don't we enjoy ourselves? But actually, how's about this for a little question, lads? Name the game, released in 1972, you probably saw it in arcades back in the day, by a gentleman called Al Alcorn. Well, <laughs> we could pretend and get it wrong, but I know it's Pong. Yeah, yeah. And, Because and you've that, seen the title of this week's show. Because I've seen the title of this week's show. <laughs> and that was a sexy arcade unit, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Pong. It was. There is actually, there's, I think it's an original, there's one at Arcade Club in Leeds. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's got the paddles on there. And yeah. I went to my mate Paul like a few months ago, and like, it's so much fun. I mean, Pong... Being, you know, considering it is one of the earliest arcade, one of the earliest video games, mm. it is one of the most fun two-player experiences, I think, in the history of games. That adrenaline you get, you know, when your paddle's going and the ball's just going to miss it. It is, it's like <laughs> a really exciting game. It really gets me hyped up. But also, it. it's like really homemade when they made that yeah. unit. Like, I remember they were saying they were using um, little baking trays for bread uh, to collect the coins. Oh, really? When they drop in, it was a domestic TV stuck in there, and they even faked the serial numbers, so they made it like zero zero one thousand. You know, to make it seem like they had more units out there. Oh wow! <laughs> well, we had Nolan Bushnell on, of course, um, the owner of Atari back in the day. Found, well, pretty much the father of video games. Mm. He joined us on uh, a couple of years ago, in episode one hundred of the podcast, and we got some great stories. And I've always wanted to talk to the man who was behind Pong. Al Alcorn is an absolute legend in the world of video games. Had a long career at Atari, obviously the thing he's most known for is Pong. For being such a simple game, it really did change the world. I mean, that was like, for a lot of people, that was their first two-player experience of video games. Yeah. So today, he's very generously agreed to give us a bit of time to talk about his time at Atari and also kind of the story behind Pong as well, which, you know, you often think, you know, it's such an easy game, you know, it's literally two paddles on the screen and a little ball going across. How can there be more to the story of that? But it's actually got a really interesting tale behind it. So Al Alcorn is our special guest. He'll be coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, of course, every week we talk about what's been happening in the world of retro gaming. And <laughs> VR is something that we often see VR. I mean, you go through stages, Ravi, where you love virtual reality, then you get a bit bored of it. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, you, you built a dedicated room. I to built a room and now I've sold it all because it was too uncomfortable. It yeah. felt like I had a huge block of metal on my head or something. It was like <laughs> I had the first HTC and it was, uh, it was quite... I could do about 30 minutes on it, yeah. 45 minutes. But um, actually, I'm really getting into AR, but I see that VR's kind of going into a different area now. It's getting a lot of like retro spaces and places that we've not been in before or, or, or since the kind of 90s and it's turning them into VR titles. Well, there are some games. I mean, VR for me is, it's something that when I'm playing it, I quite enjoy it. But often I've really got to, you know, make an effort to get the VR helmet on and get the games loaded up. And, you know, it's often something I can't, I can't be bothered to do. But yeah. occasionally, every couple of months, I'll be like, oh, let's have a little VR sesh, you know. If I've got a bit of time on my own, I'll do it. Um, but there are certain retro games that you think would actually make really good VR titles. <laughs> One of them that stands out that someone's actually done is Panzer Dragoon. Yeah, Panzer Dragoon was an absolutely fantastic title and uh, it was kind of a rail shooter. Yeah. But you were on these 
giant dragons. You were kind of flying around, shooting at each other. It was really exciting title, actually. Yeah, I like I like Panthers Dragoon. I've never actually played them, but I have got one and two for the Saturn, uh, and would love. Pan's Dragon Saga, but I'm not ready to part with like thousand pounds yet. <laughs> uh, but that's really cool. Pocket change to pocket, you, Joe. Pocket change, mere pennies. <laughs> and you're a worldwide famous rock band. Come yes, on, yeah. throw money like that around. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really cool that they've like because that because that would actually that's the kind of game that would you know translate to VR really well. I think. So what's happened then? Well, basically, there's a Tokyo-based company called Wildman. And they've developed a new Panzer Dragon. So it's a new game within the series. Wow. Okay. And wow. it's called Voyage Record. Oh. And basically, they haven't announced which VR system it's going to come out for yet. But um, it's going to be a first-person view. And you kind of use the VR as the handgun for the rider. So your okay. controllers are like the handguns. So I'm yeah. guessing it might be like the Vive or the Quest. Well, the Quest has got handheld. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, It'd be interesting if it comes to PS4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, could, it could even be PSVR, yeah. yeah. With the lollipops. Yeah, and, and it, <laughs> they've released like a tiny screenshot at the moment, but it does all look completely 4K and like high res. But there's not much detail about it. But I think it's pretty cool that they're continuing this series. And, you know, we've seen it in the Saturn form. We saw it later on in the Xbox. It'd be great to see it in a virtual reality. You know, other games, I think, certainly the ones that spring to mind. Imagine Magic Carpet. Oh, yeah. what a yes, game. That'd be sick. <laughs> Imagine that. I think I'd last about 20 seconds for a puke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the kind of game that made you feel a bit sick anyway, just on the, you know, on the TV. I, so. I was fine with Magic Carpet when you saw it. You were like, this looks amazing. And you played it. You were like, oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, remember, I remember me and my brother playing the demo for PS1 and being blown away yeah. by it and you look back at it now and you're like it looks like diarrhea yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you've never seen anything like it yeah, then, exactly. it was a really impressive game again it was one of those it was more like a graphical demo wasn't yeah. it which a lot of VR stuff is today yeah. so yeah bring that magic carpet in VR come on make it happen now another game actually that used to make me puke while we're talking about it is uh, Alien Breed 3D have you ever played Alien Breed 3D Joe? No, I'm not familiar with it I saw this story myself and I was going to send it over to you but then you sent it me funny enough um, you played so, Alien Breed 2D? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we're starting right from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Well, essentially, there was um, these were games that were famous on the Amiga, weren't they, yeah. back in the day? There was Special Edition 92, and Alien Breed 2 came yeah, out. Yeah, well. so they were like top view ones. Yeah, overhead. Before, yeah. yeah. And this was the 3D, was when they went into the first person shooter. So a Doom clone. Yeah. Yeah, Doom <laughs> clone. But the problem was, Amiga was never very good at Doom clones. And Alien Breed 3D had a very small window, it was very narrow. Yeah. Like, all of the levels were quite tall, but they had huge walls, and it was kind of hard to navigate. So on the original Amiga, it's never been really good to play. it's only half the screen as well. Yeah, it's never been good to play, unless you've got one of these stupid new cards like the Vampire that ramps it up to some really high speed, and then you can... I remember Dan told me, oh, I'm finally playing it at full speed, you know. Only took 20 years. 20 years later, yeah. <laughs> but back in the day, you could have the most souped-up Amiga and still it couldn't run it yeah, fast yeah, enough. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those games that really the hardware wasn't made for. But now, you know, obviously today we've got stuff like, we all seem to talk about this every week, GZ Doom or GZ Doom. Yeah. Like, you know, an open-source Doom engine. Well, they've actually made, someone's essentially took the levels from Alien Breed 3D yeah. and put it on the GZ Doom engine. 
Okay. So it means today, if you want to play that classic Amiga FPS that no one had hardware powerful enough to play, <laughs> you can just download it and play it on your PC on uh, GZ Doom. That and it looks good. really fantastic, yeah. like running at full speed. And if you remember, um, the D- GZ Doom was the one where they did Zombies Ate My Neighbors yeah, on yeah, yeah, yeah. Or previous projects that we've kind of talked about. And, um, you know, it doesn't yet feature all 16 maps, but they are converting and adapting. And uh, they've added additional monsters and surprises and uh, tweaks as well. I like I like the lighting in it. It looks a bit more dynamic as well and a bit darker. It looks very similar to Doom 64. Yeah, in terms of the, terms the look of, of like it. The lighting and the look yeah. of it and stuff, yeah. Yeah, because um, Bjorn Lin actually did the soundtrack to oh, it as well. Yeah, yeah. We, and apparently, you know... that uh, He did the worm soundtrack yeah, as well. Really. Yeah, we've met before, haven't we, Bjorn? Yeah, Bjorn's lovely. Yeah, yeah we um, thought we were. Um, so, yeah, it looks really... I mean, I love it when you get stuff like this. It's kind of a re- reimagining of something that you did play back then. Again, I think it's because I didn't have a system that was fast enough to play it properly. I think on my A1200 back then, I probably ran it at around eight frames a second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah one, video, <laughs> one video you should all watch is by a YouTuber called Ahoy. And it's called yes. Doomed, the Embers of Amiga First Person Shooter. And that goes through every single amazingly bad first-person shooter for there's, the Amiga. There's Ravi's retro pick. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're trying to kind of um, uh, recreate Doom. You know? Ahoy's awesome. He did like, uh, we did, he did videos about Doom. I've seen his, he does videos about like certain types of guns that did are you, in Did games. you see the recent one? A history the... of exploding barrels in games. That is wow. so interesting. Oh, wow. Right? And he did a really good one like Polybius, you know, that kind of legendary yeah, urban yeah. myth arcade machine. But it was, <laughs> it's really cool though because his videos are awesome, and he only brings one out like every six months or something. But you know, you know, it's worth a wait. Cause oh yeah, do. we've asked him to come on, but he never replies. But if, come if on, you, ahoy. yeah, if you ever do listen to Hoy, we'd love to have you on. Now, flash games, not something that generally gets a lot of love. Got me through school. <laughs> do you have any ones you remember? Yeah, but I can't remember what they were called. <laughs> that is exactly was, what I was going to say. Newgrounds.com. I remember yeah. that. The one that's coming to mind now is the Madness Combat game. Right. So my Madness Combat was the videos, but there was a game of it as well on Newgrounds. And then that other one, which actually became a real game where you jumped off the walls and stuff. I remember the Stickman ones for ages. There was like Stickman fighting and like loads of different levels of Stickman stuff. And then, do you remember Trials HD? That... That was there was original little bike one where you'd kind of go it was across loads the screen of trials, and jump. Loads yeah. of trials yeah. games on flash games. I remember yeah. mainly the comedy videos though. Yeah. There was some hilarious stuff. But before kind of viral videos or memes, there was when you'd email it to your mates. <laughs> oh yeah, and then have about fifty yeah. like forwarding addresses all the way down. <laughs> the thing stuff. was with Newgrounds as well, you'd always end up in like the porn bit by accident. Yeah, like, by oh, accident. Oh, <laughs> oh, what's going on here? <laughs> That's why you got kicked out of computer class at school. Yeah, then, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, flash games are not real. I mean, they're being replaced for the casual gamers by phone games these days yeah. or Facebook games, even if they're still around anymore. But there is being, um, there's a bit of an effort now to preserve Flash games because as much as we might think they're naff, they were an important part of online gaming. Mm. You know, that, for a lot of us, that was like our first online gaming experience, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, 100%. playing Flash games. So at the moment, there's um, an organization called the Strong Museum who have uh, partnered with uh, a web gaming portal called... Um, Congregate. So they're actually making an effort to preserve as many Flash games as they can get yeah. and have a way that you can play them again. Because, I mean, obviously, Flash support 
has ended, hasn't it? I think Flash well, is actually going Flash away. is probably one of the most unsecure things yeah. in the world now. So oh, really? they're, they're ending support for it fully because HTML5 is taken over. So your browsers are going to start rejecting Flash. Well, they already do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So archiving this is uh, going to be really important because I'm sure you, you won't even be able to get onto the sites because it would be like security warning and mm. all of this. You know. But if they could have some kind of... They haven't said you know what they're going to do with the archive. Essentially, at the moment, they've just announced, look, we're making a collection of these games. But if they had them on a website and maybe like a, a wrapper so you could actually play Flash or, or I in think another it might, yeah, yeah, yeah. on the fly conversion to HTML5 or something yeah, yeah. That might make it playable, you know. Yeah, and then you play them for about 20 seconds you're like, yep, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this reminds me of my last year at school. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when they put all of Geo's cities back up again. I went through about four sites and I thought, yeah, this is crap. <laughs> but yeah, it is important to preserve this stuff though. Now, one game that obviously, you know, if we're talking about the Spectrum, the most famous game on the spectrum, Jet Set Willy. Uh, we were at Play Expo in um, Manchester last year, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, Paul Drury did a, a talk with Matthew Smith. First expo we'd done in, God, about 10, 15 years. And the, I think the last one was with you, actually, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 years ago. Um, so it was great to hear him talking about that. And we actually did broadcast that on our podcast as well. So if you want to check out kind of the behind the scenes about Jet Set Willy, um, check out an earlier episode of the Retro Hour podcast. I'm sure you can find it on our website. But there was a little project that a lot of people kind of forget about that, you know, obviously Willy was in a couple of games on the Spectrum, but there was one called The Perils of Willy. And that was a conversion that came out on the VIC-20. Well, famously, kind of, Jet Set Willy vs. the Taxman was the one that... Never came out. That never yeah. came out and uh, kind of ended ended Matthew Smith's career because, yeah. you know, kind of, he, he couldn't cope doing it. Uh, but this one seems like a different title. Yeah, well, this stars Minor Willy. He's in there and essentially has... Uh, he gets tasked by the housekeeper, Maria, to clean up things that's been left around the house after a house party. So essentially he's going around picking up bottles, that kind of thing, just tidying up the house. But this game only came out on the VIC-20. So Spectrum fans, this is like a, a minor Willy game that probably never got to play oh, back cool. in the day. But it turns out now someone's actually done a port of it to the Spectrum. So minor Willy is really back on his, his spiritual home. So if you're a Specky fan back in the day and you always wanted like a third minor Willy game, then finally all these years later you've got one. And you could probably play this on your Spectrum next as well, I guess. I imagine it would work yeah. on that. Yeah, I can't see why not. Or... Uh... Or Flash, maybe someone did the Flash. <laughs> I'm sure that would work too. You're but it's obsessed. really cool. <laughs> That's all I'm going to do when I get home. You know, that like old Flash game before it gets discontinued. But I mean, yeah, seeing like a game like that, I, it is always a bit weird when you you check out games that maybe had characters in that yeah. were on other platforms that you didn't play back in the day. You're like, oh, it's, they don't belong in that game. So yeah, it's kind of a bit bizarro world. But yeah, but if you want to check that out, I'll put a link in our show notes to that and everything else we talked about this week at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, this podcast comes out every single Friday, but the only reason that we can do that is thanks very much to your support. You may have heard at the moment, we've got a bit of a fun number trying to get a studio built this summer, hopefully, so we can bring you even more content on the Retro Hour podcast. And after years of people suggesting it, we finally did it. We set up a patron last month. And we were a bit nervous about doing it. We're like, oh, is anyone really going to well, support this? We wanted to work out the, the right tiers and the right rewards. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've got it right. So people are actually giving us a lot of support on there. And that's incredible. You know, we're nearly at our goal, not too far off to get the studio built. Obviously, we're going to need a, need a bit up front to get deposits and uh, get all the studio built itself. So, you know, it's going to be a few months until we can do it. Uh, but thank you so much, guys. We're really blown away by your support. So anything we get into the running of the show is really going to help us out in our goal of building our own studio. And of course, for doing that, we'll give you a bit of love on the podcast as well and give you a mention on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, thank you so much to Leepan Sumo. David Hart. Jane Hamill. Jim Wheel. And Hafran Ranjov. 
We do try and say the names properly. We try our best. To we try. It. Yeah, we do. We'll give you a giggle if we get it wrong at least. <laughs> so thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to do the same, actually, you want to back us on Patreon, we'd really appreciate that. You'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. And you can get an ad-free episode of The Retro Hour and also bonuses like getting it a little bit early and maybe a few things that we're doing extra like documentaries. And The Retro Hour After Hours. Our cheeky little uh, sexy bonus podcast, which uh, we've done one episode of so yeah, far. Yeah. There will be more coming. There you will know, be more. Obviously with the situation we've had recently, it's kind of put a bit of a blogger on stuff, but we've got mics at home and stuff. We'll get another episode of that out very soon. So listen, thank you so much for your support, guys. It really means a lot to us. And if you'd like to back us, you'll find all the information at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, the legend that is Al Alcorn, just time for this week's retro picks. Now, you've actually talked about the Pico 8 on the show before. Yeah, so we did a show a while ago and we were talking about video games development and uh, somebody messaged me and we were saying, actually, you know, uh, you had all these game development pieces of software back in the days and it was quite hard nowadays. And he was like, no, it's not. There's the Pico 8. We have mentioned it before. It's an absolutely fantastic little development environment. And um, I've actually been on a Pico 8 uh, course at the National right. Video Game Museum. I do and remember I, you doing that. Yeah, actually, and yeah. I sat there and I learned about how to kind of make games on this. And it's it's really fantastic. Uh, it's great for editing code, music, sprites, maps, and it's all built into the console as well. So you just have this little environment that you can develop in. So if you check out the link in the description, then you can see some Pico 8 resources. You can see projects that people have made and you can kind of download some games. Absolutely. Well, I've been checking out um, one of our friends on YouTube. Now, I love this guy. This is actually, it's probably one of the first YouTubers I ever watched. And I don't think this guy gets enough love. And this is Paul is the best. Oh, I love Paul is the best. Like, you're right. Years and years and years ago, we used to watch Paul, and he's still doing it. Yeah, Paul is the best 3UK on YouTube. And at the moment, what he's been doing is, he's been doing this for a few months now, a game a day. So what he'll do is he'll pick a different system every month, and he'll do a game from that system every night at 6pm. Oh, really? At the moment, he's doing arcade games. So he's done uh, Dead or Alive. He did Turtles Arcade, um, the arcade version of Outrun. He's done as well Cruising USA, Shinobi, The Simpsons Arcade, Chase HQ. So he does, and he did like the Commodore 16 recently. He's done Spectrum games. He does so much on there. Normally, most of his videos, he drinks a few pints while he does them. Yeah. Don't watch it around the kids. There's a bit of language in them too. <laughs> he, he's hilarious though. I, re- I love his videos. So again, I've probably watched him for about, because it's about 2007, eight, you know, a long time. So. And I've seen him around, you know, he's been in a retro gamer. He's done a few things with yeah. them. And also he's come up and said hi to us at shows. So it's yeah. always great to see Paul. I chat to Paul a lot on Facebook. Yeah, top lad. What's your retro pick this week then, Joseph? Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Nintendo Life, which oh, is yeah. a fantastic website pretty much my go-to website to find out what's going on and you know there's so much great stuff about retro games on there as well you know we get a few of our news articles from there sometimes lots of news news articles (laughs) but no it's a great great website so you know if you're interested in the podcast um, and you want to read up more stuff as well Nintendo Life is just like a spot on one for like day to day you know daily news daily updates with like what's going on with retro gaming great website and of course everything we do talk about on the show I put them all in our show notes you don't have to google them or search around you'll find them all in our notes on your favourite podcast app or just head to our website at theretrohour.com and next we are going to be joined by an absolute veteran of the video games industry getting some stories about the earliest days of the arcades and the home video game market working alongside legends like Nolan Bushnell Steve Jobs and Woz and of course the story of Pong next with Al Alcorn on the Retro Hour podcast 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest, a true veteran who's been there since the earliest days of the video games industry. Welcome to the show, Al Alcorn. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Look forward to uh, chatting with you. Really appreciate you joining us. Now, um, let's start your story um, in San Francisco. That's where you were born. I mean, what was your uh, early life in San Francisco like? Yeah, San Francisco is an interesting city at that time. It was pretty cosmopolitan, and uh, uh, and public schools gave a great great education. Uh, and uh, but I'll tell you, in the early days, I was always fascinated with electronics and how things worked. And fortunately, I had a neighbor. I, I lived, you know, right near the corner of Haight Ashbury uh, before it got famous. And a neighbor across the street had a television repair shop. Uh, about a half a mile down Haight Street, and uh, I would go there after school, and I was like uh, 12, 13 years old in junior high school, and uh, helped fix radios and televisions, and and uh, my father got me signed up into a, a electronics correspondence course, and uh, so I, I, you know, at that early age, decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer, even though I really didn't know what they did, you know, and that, and so I got to go to the San Francisco public schools has a one college prep high school called Lowell High. And uh, and I went there basically because the neighborhood I was living in was kind of a rough neighborhood. And the local high school my brother went to was pretty violent and uh, was one of the worst schools in the city. So I chose, I begged to get into Lowell. I squeaked in and uh, uh, saved me from that stuff. And, and also I wound up on the football team, which proved to be very very profoundly instrumental uh, and became a uh, uh, a big uh, high school football athlete, which uh, subsequently got me into Cal Berkeley, uh, where I played football for Cal Berkeley uh, for uh, a little less than a week. <laughs> and I had to decide, do I want to be an engineer or I'm going to be a uh, you know a football player? And I remember it was beginning the end of summer and school started. And uh, we were having double practice every day, two two-hour workout sessions. And I go to, I was in a fraternity house, and I go back to the house after practice. And I would, I, I literally lost 10 pounds of weight every day in practice and would regain it with just water, you know, rehydrating. And, uh, and here I'm trying to do calculus and physics at a college level, <laughs> I, go, I think I'm going to go with the engineering stuff. So that's how that all got started. Was that a tough choice to make things? Obviously, you're very passionate about football, too. Yeah, you know, I, it wasn't that tough. No, mm. no. I mean, frankly, you know, remember, this, at this point, this was the 60s. This was uh, 65, 66. And it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. There was uh, protests going on. There was the draft. I had uh, people my age going to Vietnam and dying. Uh, so going to Cal, any college, uh, would keep you from getting drafted and maybe die. Uh, you know, so uh, it was a lot. Of, and, you had, and it made you think about what was going on. All of a sudden, the, the school had a, you know, we, we didn't go to class for a while, boycotted and whatnot. And uh, my father was a merchant marine shipping napalm to Vietnam, very much pro-war. My brother was a police officer in a neighboring town. Uh, and he'd come out to our campus and throw tear gas at us. And we got along well as a family. But it, but it made you think about what was important. And 
and made you understand whether you can trust your government or not, you know, that sort of stuff. It sort of reflected in what we did at Atari later on. I mean, you mentioned about your interest in electronics at an early age as well. Would you consider yourself a, a hacker in the traditional sense of the word? Sure. At that point, in those, yes, in those days, the, the term wasn't used as such, but clearly I was, I was taking apart televisions, I was fixing them, uh, uh, building things. I, uh, in 19, I bet it was 66 or 65 when I was in high school, uh, lasers had just been invented. And, uh, for my high school, uh, uh, physics, there was a senior project everybody had to do. And I got the award. I built a working pulse Ruby laser. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I guess you'd say I was a hacker. Or was it at Berkeley when you first discovered computers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Berkeley was, uh, you know, God, I always got a God. It didn't, didn't. I had to pay my way through Berkeley. I, uh, you know, I didn't have. We were fairly poor. It was a great school, and and so I wanted to be an engineer. Well, the department had to take. I had to take electrical engineering and computer science, whether I wanted to or not. Right, and everybody in engineering had to take E one which was uh, programming, this is before BASIC was invented, and we were programming Fortran with punch cards on a big mainframe computer, either an IBM 70, uh, 7090 or a uh, 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 before Cray. Anyway, it was, uh, yeah, so I, I learned about, uh, it was very important, you know, I, I learned Fortran and alcohol programming and and uh, how you could apply it. So that was, uh, yeah, my first exposure. Were you playing any of the early kind of mainframe games that were around at that stage? Not really. No, there were no, not on that computer. This was a, this was a big computer. And uh, what we did, what I did, though, is one of the courses, when a, com- a, com- a computer course, a friend of mine and I, again, you had to use punch cards. So you'd go punch a deck of cards. That we had to go on campus to a building to do that and submit the deck. And then two hours later, come walk back, pick up your printout and see what happened. And this could take forever if you didn't get it right the first time. Uh, a friend of mine and I discovered a terminal online to the main computer in the basement of the chem building. And you could get in at night and it was just sitting there. And we figured out how to log on and we could run the program in batch mode ourselves. <laughs> the professor was very upset because they build you, they build him time for everybody to use the computer and he was the only one supposed to use it and it was uh yeah yeah so we did a little hacking back then well after berkeley i mean you, you got a job and was that when you first met nolan bushnell then in in that role yeah yeah what happened uh, i was at it wasn't after berkeley halfway through berkeley right. uh, uh college is a grind and uh, uh, uh berkeley was not a nurturing environment shall we say you either succeeded or get the hell out of here because there's five guys that want your place. So the pressure is very high, and I wasn't I wasn't about to quit school because that would mean I'd go to Vietnam. Uh, but there was this program, little use, called uh, a work study, where you could uh, uh, go to school for six months and then work in industry for for six months, split your time. And uh, and I figured, hey, that'd be great. I could make money, it would help pay my way through school. And uh, I might enjoy learning something. And uh, long story, I wound up uh, a job at Ampex, uh, a little spinoff of Ampex called Videofile, which is where I met Nolan. And, uh, and I worked with some 
some of the finest engineers in the world uh, got to you know be mentored by people that invented videotape recording and so that was a very fortunate thing and Nolan was one of the people there he was not frankly he was not the 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 best engineer there but from a technical standpoint but he was good and uh, he was an entrepreneurial sir he was always putting together figuring out ways to make money do you remember your first impression of him did he come across quite quite charming then and yeah, he yeah. was uh, an enthusiastic young guy out of college, uh, you know, out of Utah. And uh, uh, I, I didn't work with him too much. He was in a little different, on a different team. But uh, yeah, yeah, he was, uh, uh, he actually put together a uh, investment c- club group. So back in those days, normal people didn't own stock. That was for wealthy people. So if you wanted to be in the stock market, you had to, get enough people together to get enough money that you could get a broker to sell you some stock. And that's what Nolan did. He put together some, got together with some other engineers and uh, had a little stock group going. I thought, you know, that was pretty cool. I didn't have any money, so it wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, Atari was initially called a Syzygy um, in the earliest days. So wh- when did you join then and what were you initially working on when you, when you got there? Well, well, let me tell you this way. Uh, so one day, so Nolan and Ted Daphne worked together, shared an office, and uh, Nolan uh, had this idea for computer space, making a raster scan version of computer space, if you know what I mean, turning yeah. computer space into something that could be affordable and, and, and cheap. And that's what his passion was. And he did that uh, after work at, at Ampex and got Ted Daphne to help him. And they went off. Eventually, they quit, which everybody was shocked, and went to work for this little company, the only company west of the Mississippi that made video games called Nutting Associates. They made a game called Computer Space, uh, a coin-op game, and uh, built this game for them. They designed it there. And one day, they took us over to lunch. They took our whole little group and came over, and, we, and they showed us the prototype, the working thing. It was quite impressive and uh but i didn't think it would do much or whatever and then uh and then uh, a few months later nolan and ted t- came over to take me to lunch uh and I, hey that's nice wow it's very nice of them and uh they offered me this job uh and nolan it's funny he took he had a, a turquoise blue buick station wagon and it was a company car and i'm going wow what's a company car wow <laughs> it's a car you can drive you have to pay for like wow I never heard of such a thing, you know, <laughs> like this is, woo, this is fun. And it was, so they, they offered me a job. They offered me a thousand dollars a month salary and 10% of the stock in the company. In my calculation, I was, I was 24 years old and I figured the stock would be worthless. Uh, and a thousand dollars a month was a little less than I was already making at Ampex. But I figured uh, that I would get in a startup See, working at Ampex, you're an engineer and a big, you're just a little tiny gear in a big machine. Uh, And so you only see one part of the world of engineering. And if you have a startup, you got to do everything from janitorial duties to marketing to everything. And I'd learn a lot more. And then the company would fail. The plan was, my plan was the company would fail in a year or two. And I'd go back to Ampex and I just, I'd figured out that if you did that, you'd get in, you'd be hired in at a much higher level than if you just stayed at Ampex. So that was my strategy. Did not work out, but that was the plan. 
Well, I mean, when you were there at Atari in those earliest days, did it feel like you were on the verge of something big then? It must have all felt, you know, this new industry. Was it a very exciting place to be? <laughs> well, Nolan was the only guy that thought we had a new industry, okay? Nolan was, oh, it's going to be a million-dollar industry. We're going to build, you know, we're going to build 100 Pongs a day. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> this guy's nuts. And I've got documentation. I've got memos to prove that we argued about this because, <laughs> you know, hey, we had – no money, no no equity investment. I didn't even know what equity was at that point. And uh, but okay, we'll just go along. And 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 in retrospect, Nolan was brilliant for starting a company. Normally, when you start a company, you got to get people, angels, to put money in the company, right? Give you some startup capital. Mm. We didn't have any. We, we we had a coin op route. They'd save money from royalties on. Um, computer space and they bought a bunch of uh, pinball machines and other coin op stuff and we had a little route in our area and that provided cash flow i mean it was that level of quarters coming in and nolan had a contract with uh uh with bally it provided some cash so we went but we did we had a little a little office with three or four of us in the office and so there wasn't much expense and uh nolan set me down to design this uh, uh simple video game and okay Sure, only I'll go do it, you know. And uh, I whipped it out. It actually took about two or three months. Uh, I appreciate Nolan giving me credit for doing it in a week, but I am not that good. Uh, and and it was really funny because Nolan gave me this story that we had a contract from uh, General Electric. Wow, to design a, a video game, a home video game, which meant. The cost to build it, our parts cost would have to be like uh, $30 or something. And I'm building this thing with logic chips the way I, best way I could figure out how to do. And I was way over that budget. And no one didn't seem to mind. <laughs> and the fact that nobody from General Electric ever wrote us a letter or called or came by didn't really bother me that much because I was having fun working with my friends, you know, building this thing. And Next thing, and I, and I made it, tried to make it playable because it, 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 you know, I had added the speed up and uh, stuff like that. And Nolan said it had to have score and it had to have sound. And, and okay, you put all that stuff in and, uh, and then we put it on location just to see what would happen out there. Because Nolan, I think, believed that the game was going to be a driving game or some massive, that uh, computer space kind of failed. It didn't fail, but it was not a big hit. Uh, and frankly, it was too complicated. And he thought the success might be more complicated, a driving game or something like that. And so Nolan just gave me the simplest game he could think of to get me, uh, you know, some chops, do the real thing. Did you ever and, figure out why he came up with the General Electric story then? Was that just kind of to inspire you a bit, do you think? Or? Yeah, because he's not going to, he's going to, Al, I'm going to give you this project. And we're going to work on it for a few months, and then we're going to throw it away and design the real thing. That's not, you know, that's not really inspiring me to do do the best I can. And I felt, and I was actually felt I was failing at the job because this was not going to be a home game. It was going to be way too expensive for a home game, but sure as hell, it could be a, a real deal for an arcade game. It was a bargain. There was nothing in a pong game, pretty much. You know, the big money was in the cabinet and the TV set. Well, you know, when you were working on the design of Pong, I mean, obviously we had um, Ralph Baer doing the you know, the brown box, um, Magnavox Odyssey prototype in the late 60s. It was like a ping pong game on screen. Were you aware of that at the time? And was that an influence at all in the design of Pong? You know, um, not really. I think obviously no one was aware of it. 
uh, I it, it had really not come out. Nolan, when he when we first started this thing, apparently, according to Nolan, he he visited a trade show where they introduced the product. So I was already designing Pong when Nolan first saw the Magnavox Odyssey, right? And and it's a frankly not that fun a game to play. It's very difficult to have fun playing it. Uh, and uh, and Nolan saw that. But, but it was clearly the simplest possible game to this day. It's the simplest possible video game you could make, right? Mm. One moving object, two paddles, <laughs> and two score digits. I mean, nothing. But it turns out that's what the public wanted, you know, like, okay. And uh, I remember, you know, taking that prototype, Ted Dabney built a cabinet for it over the weekend and uh, put it on an Andy Capps Tavern. And the, the owner, uh, uh, Mr. Gaddis, uh, was very helpful and, uh, you know, appreciate, liked us and we got along. So uh, we said, hey, we're going to put this new machine in, try it out. Said, sure. And it was in this cabinet. You've probably seen pictures of the, the cabinet, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a little thing. And uh, uh, we put it on a barrel and went and bought a beer and sat back and watched and see. And I remember the first couple of young men to go play it. After they played it, uh, we know, hey, what you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, good game. I, I know the guys that invented that, this guy tells us. And we said, hey, save the bullshit for the ladies, okay? <laughs> and, uh, uh, so that was it. Okay, it seemed to work. People played it. And, and I was kind of, if you think about it, honestly, think about it. This is a world where pinball machines, they had single play. Pinballs were primarily a, a single-player game. But you could play one, two, three, or four people on some pinball machines, okay? But they were in rotation. Uh, Pong was the only coin-operated game that required two people, had no single-player mode. Uh, very unusual, okay? That's one thing. The other thing was it was 25 cents a play, where pinball machines were 10 cents a play, okay? So was it going to succeed? Uh, we didn't know, and I don't. I didn't see that. There was that much play value, so I had no expectation. And and then the surprise was when the machine broke, you know, and it stopped working. And because it was slapped together so quickly, it didn't surprise me that it stopped working. And I went over to, to fix it and discovered the problem was the coin map was completely filled with quarters. I'm like, wow, that was something. And I remember I remember taking the taking the quarters and splitting them with the owners per se and then the next day going back to work because I did I did this after work and I dumped this pile of quarters on Nolan's desk and said I found the problem <laughs> <laughs> it's not going, not a bad problem hey, to have though is it <laughs> maybe this isn't such a turkey and meanwhile he is planning to give this to Bally and uh, I think he realized that hell I want to be in the business you know I because we were sort of, Ted Dabney and I and Nolan, the deal was we were going to be consulting engineers. We were brilliant engineers, we thought, and we'd uh, design these things and uh, license them to Bally and other companies and uh, cash royalty checks. That was the plan. And I think the yeah. design of the game, even though, you know, like you said, it's very simplistic, it was, you know, that having that two-player experience. I mean, I recently played an original Pong machine at a place called Arcade Club here in the UK. And uh -huh. my friend and I were on it, and it's still got the same adrenaline rush that you got the first time you played it. You know, that, that player versus player thing, which I guess that was probably, I mean, do, do you kind of think that was the foundation of why people enjoyed it so much? Just because 
it was such a, a game that really put you against another person and got the adrenaline flowing? Well, I think that's part of it. I think, I think there are other aspects, too, that are very critical. First off, if you notice, back in those days, you look at a pinball machine. It had naked ladies on it and all kinds of crazy graphics. And Pong was very subdued with just wood panel stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and yellow for excitement and black for mystery. And uh, so that was one aspect. So it didn't offend the ladies. Secondly, because it required two people, it was also something that the, the ladies could play just as well as the men. And so it, it inspired social interaction. I mean, that was not my plan at all. <laughs> That's what happened. And uh, so, hey, that was cool. So, you know, it wasn't – so, yeah, in retrospect, it seems like, oh, wow, you know, this was our plan. Well, uh, yeah, no, it, uh, you, just, you just do things, do something and see what happens and react. Well, were there many companies building clone and copy arcade cabinets around that time, and how did Atari react to that? Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Uh, my attitude was – don't applaud, just throw money, you know. I, uh, but we were so underfunded and whatnot, we, we didn't bother to patent anything. Uh, uh, and we knew that the industry we were in, the coin-op people, you know, we weren't going to sue these guys because they weren't that rich and they would just go off and do something else. So, uh, yeah, it was a little frustrating. I mean, my, my guess, and who knows, but I think we only made about – a third or a quarter of the Pong type games that were out there. They were just all these copies. But what we had that none of the other guys had <laughs> was we had the ability to design the next game. So that's what we did, you know. And so by designing the next game and inspiring us to move the ball, the industry was just, we became the advanced development group for the entire uh, coin operated entertainment industry. They would just copy our stuff. And uh, uh, so, okay, but we moved faster than they did. And so, uh, you know, that was Silicon Valley, too. Well, Atari must have been a very exciting place at the time, and you attracted lots of talent. For example, uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak worked at Atari as well. I actually read that you you hired Steve Jobs for the position. Yeah, I wouldn't say I, when I looked at Steve Jobs, I wasn't thinking about talent so much as cheap. <laughs> 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 no, I think what your point, what happened was, remember, we were, we were all under 30 years of age, and, and we were all engineers. We were not experienced management types. We had all worked at Ampex, so we knew how it should be done. But we didn't see why should you have to wear a suit and tie? Why should you have to show up at 8 o'clock and punch a tie, you know, in one hour? Uh, why not just get the job done and be enthusiastic about your job? And, uh, and, 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 and have an open, free environment. And uh, so it became, on several counts, a very fun place to work, a very exciting, was the most exciting place to work. Uh, and we would get people drop in, you know, that, uh, hey, you know, they're working at Intel or something like that, and, and uh, it's kind of boring, hard, boring work. And, gee, I could work for a company that's making games and they pay me. You know, and uh, so that that attracted some. We got some very good talent, and uh, yeah. And one day, Steve Jobs sashayed in, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, if I had been at any other company, I would have gotten fired for hiring a guy like that. You know, I mean, he was eighteen year old at that uh, dropout from Reed College, 
but he had enthusiasm. And uh, that's what I want. I wanted people that could be enthusiastic about uh, the work that they were doing. And uh, he, he did that uh, in spades. How did he persuade you to give him a position then? Well, <laughs> in spite of his persuasion, I mean, you should see his, uh, it's floating around the internet, his application, the real application he filled out. Uh, uh, you know, he could barely drive, he could barely drive a car. Uh, uh, you know, his main qualification was he knew this guy named Steve Wozniak that works at HP. And I said, well, what the hell good does that do me? He's not here. Well, but he's real smart. <laughs> and what wound up was, was, uh, Woz would come over and stay at Atari and play at Atari because it was more fun after work than Hewlett Packard. So, uh, yeah. And Woz was clearly brilliant guy, uh, character, absolute character. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. Well, he, they worked on Breakout together, didn't they? I mean, have you got any memories that stand out of Woz and Jobs working with them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole Breakout thing, from my perspective, was really crazy. See, the problem was going on was Nolan, God bless him, has a very short attention span. So he would sashay into engineering and look at the projects underway. There may, we might have had two or three projects going on at once, and it would take like three months or so to, to finish a game, to design a game and get it to production. And Nolan would change the project halfway through. And I realized, so what the hell's going on, Nolan? We're never going to ship anything. We've got to finish a game, you know. Oh, I know, I know, I'm sorry, but I just can't resist. So uh, I had an alert system set up. Whenever he went into engineering, I had a pager to be used in the event he went into engineering. And I just go in there and put everything back that he had upset. So he got frustrated. So he went around me and hired the one guy I wasn't watching, which was Jobs. And Nolan, I don't think Nolan realized he's not an engineer. He's just a tech. He can solder. And, and, and Jobs wouldn't say no. And he took on the job. And unbeknownst to me, and I come into work one morning, and Jobs says, hey, look at this. And there's a finished breakout game, prototype, working on the bench. And, you know, you understand it takes two or three months to design a game. And it takes a little bit of care and attention and support. And like none of this happened. You just walk in and the game just sprung up out of the carpet. You know, like, what? You, you know what I mean? So, and then, then Jobs gives me this bullshit that, oh, yeah, I designed it. I'm like, no, you didn't. I looked at the schematic. Oh, holy moly. This is incredible because the deal Nolan cut is, is famous was that every chip under 50 would be like a thousand dollar a chip bonus because Pong took 72 some odd, 70 some odd chips. So there was no way you could do a breakout game, which had all these paddles and all these other features for less than 70 chips. So Nolan's saying 50 chips, I'll give you, you know, there was no danger of him having to spend any money at all. Well, he didn't take into account Waz did this job, and he did it. Waz did it in like less than a week, and uh, uh, it had like twenty-four chips in it. Wow! No, Nolan didn't say you had to be able to buy the chips. <laughs> <laughs> so Waz had taken chips out of HP <laughs> that you couldn't get. <laughs> oh man! And it was such an incredible design that normal people, I couldn't understand it fully. And, uh, and so we really couldn't put it into production. And eventually I gave it to a normal engineer who redesigned it with a hundred chips and it was a big hit, you know? So that's how that came about. And of course the, you know, the reality, the truth about how much money was coming out 
was another thing that kind of affected Waz's and Jobs' relationship. But yeah, uh, those those were the days. Well, when we had Nolan on the show a couple of years ago, um, he was talking about um, the fact that Waz and Jobs actually, you know, tried to offer the Apple One as a machine that Atari should release, and he turned them down. And he had a somewhat of a regret about that, I think, afterwards. I mean, well, were you there in any of those meetings at the time? Oh yeah, I set them up. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't the Apple One; it was the Apple Two. They had the Apple One out, and uh, and the Apple Two job Waz had designed the Apple Two, which was actually something you could produce. And if you looked at the, the layout of the printed circuit board, you'd see that it was done by the same PC layout artist that we used, Howard Canton. And uh, and in the early parts and the early production of, at, at Apple were parts from Atari. Uh, uh, so you know, we were happy to sell these kids uh, parts they couldn't get. You understand, these guys were 18 years old. Yeah. And and you can't get a trade account at a semiconductor company. I mean, you can't even get a credit card. You know, it was like crazy. So I had to help them get set up at a couple of vendors, uh, just being nice to them, and we helped them out. So Jobs offered the Apple II to uh, uh, actually to Joe Keenan. I set that up because Nolan, Nolan would say yes, and I'm going, come on, Nolan, you know. And Joe was the president and a real businessman, and he actually didn't get along with Jobs very well. And Jobs pissed him off. Jobs was in his office, and he's picking his bare feet on his desk in the office and did not endear uh, Joe to anyway. But in reality, I, would, I wouldn't change it. It was easy to say that we should have did it, but we were on the verge of putting out a consumer product, and we knew this, and it was going to change the nature of the company. It was going to require all the money we could muster, and we had to put all our efforts behind this consumer pong game, this home pong game. And... Uh, so that was the decision, and uh, and I remember Jobs coming out of the office from the meeting with uh, Joe, and all kind of depressed. He said, "No, no, no, kick me out." <laughs> and and he said, "What can we do?" Well, I said, "I'll introduce you to our venture capitalist, uh, uh, Don Valentine." And uh, we introduced him to Don Valentine. Don saw the thing. I remember Don coming back saying, "Hey, Al, they're in a garage." And I go, well, isn't that the Silicon Valley story in the garage? He says, yeah, but there's a car in the garage and a washing machine. And, <laughs> you know, I said, well, get him a spot, you know. And so uh, God bless Don. He was a brilliant. If you talked to him and met him, you'd say he was the most conservative guy you ever met. But he took a flyer on this one. You know, most conservative people wouldn't touch his two kids. And what he did that very few people understand was he put Mark Markala in that company. And Mike was a very experienced semiconductor executive uh, that had already made a fortune. And uh, and Mike, the company would have imploded if, if Don Valentine hadn't put Mike in. Mike Markle is the guy that, you know, did the mundane things like got payroll and shipping and manufacturing working on an orderly basis. And uh, so uh, anyway, it was, uh, it became a, became a hit. Yeah, because I say it worked out okay for them, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, to our surprise. But hey, we were doing pretty well too. Yeah, I mean, let's get back to Atari. I mean, obviously, when the the VCS, you know, the twenty six hundred came along, um, that was a system that changed the world as well. I mean, what memories have you got of that? Boy, yeah, that was uh, that was a, a very the whole release of that was very strange, and most people don't realize that was. I believe it was introduced in the nineteen seventy seven Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. I could be off by a year, but I knew it was the summer 
the June CES. A year before that, one year before that, Nolan had settled. Magnavox sent us a letter threatening to sue us for violating their bullshit patent. And, uh, and we realized that we weren't going to fight this thing. We had to settle with them. And Nolan got a settlement with them one week before the 1976 Consumer Electronics Show that gave Magnavox a one-year exclusive or permission that any product we introduced at Atari in 365 days from the signing of that document, Magnavox could build. So this inspired us. We weren't going to release it till this the June CES anyhow, uh, which would have been you know a year and a week beyond that. But it required us to keep our mouth shut, which we normally didn't do. We couldn't keep a secret. But we kept this a secret. And so when it was introduced at the CES, it was a big shock and a big surprise to the industry. Uh, so that was <clears throat> one thing. And Nolan had negotiated a paid-up license. It was like a half a million or something like that. Our attorney said, oh, we could beat that patent. Oh, yeah, we could win that patent. Easy. Oh, yeah, really? Why? How much would it cost? Oh, a million, two million. And, and we knew that that, was the, that number would be the lowest it would ever cost, and it would take all our time. And so if we could do a paid-up settlement for half a million dollars or thereabouts, that was a great deal. And it was paid up, and then everybody else now had to pay them a royalty. So we had a better deal than everybody else in the industry. So that's that's how that got released on that date. And when that system came out, I mean, every kid in the world wanted that in their bedroom. I mean, did, did that really change things at Atari then when, when the system was released? Yeah. I mean, at first, oh, yeah, sales were tremendous at the beginning, uh, and Warner had taken over by this time. And things were going along well. The honeymoon with Warner was great. Everybody was happy. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great new business because we knew from building all these dedicated games that we had to go with a cartridge-based system. And uh, that was it. And, uh, and we'd also hired in uh, a group. We'd, we'd stolen the consumer, the consumer electronics engineering group out of uh, National Semiconductor. National Semiconductor was trying to steal our products. And we basically stole the entire engineering team that they had <laughs> because National was a, not a fun place to work. And we were a lot more fun to work and we paid them more money. And uh, they came over and did, a, frankly, a much better job designing than I ever could have. Uh, but, but by this time, you know, we had a very competent chip design group. Back in those days, you had to do custom chips. Normally, they were done by a semiconductor company for you, and you had to buy only from them, and the price would be very high. And we had, I'd put together a team that could uh, design our own chips, and uh, Jay Miner and company, and, and so we were able to design this, this architecture that was uh, designed by uh, Steve Mayer and Ron Milner up in Grass Valley, and, and it's brilliant design, uh, which used like, one-third the parts of anybody else's a semiconductor company. We blew away. All these other companies were trying to make compatible competing systems, but the way they did it with the memory map and all that cost three or four times as much as our system cost. So we had them beat from the get-go. I find it interesting you mentioned Jay Miner there as well. I always think that Jay is kind of a very you know, unsung hero in the world of um, video games and engineering. I mean, what memories have you got of working with Jay? Was he a great guy to work alongside? Oh, yeah. He's the sweetest man. He reminded, he reminded you of uh, Santa Claus. Yeah. I mean, he looked like Santa Claus, 
but he was as sweet and nice as you would want Santa Claus to be. And, uh, uh, and, and it was funny because towards the end, uh, I'll, I'll tell this story. Uh, stop me if you've heard this, but, uh, you know, I went into CJ and this is after, uh, Warner had taken over and, uh, the company was getting real big and I went and found Jay in engineering and how's it going? He was very sad. And what happened? He says, they won't let me bring my dog, Mitchie in, you know, and I go, what? Yeah. Security says you can't bring dogs in. I'm like, yeah. So, uh, I said, tell you what, tomorrow bring Mitchie and come to my office you know, in the morning and, uh, uh, we'll take care of it. So I remember it was Nolan and I and Joe, uh, Jay and me and Mitchie went down to, uh, uh, security and said, give this dog a badge. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I can't do that. And then we explained who worked for who, <laughs> what the company, I mean, people, when the company gets big enough, people forget what business you're in, you know? And, uh, so we explained to him, oh, okay, so uh, sure, uh, but what what number, what employee number? We said zero. So <laughs> Mitchie got a badge. But, you know, it was real exciting because Jay had the skills to design much better chips than we could design with our little team initially. And, uh, and, we, put, and we, could, we could steal away the best people from the semiconductor company. So we had a pretty good group, but Jay was – just a sweetheart. And I remember towards the end, you know, things got so bad, everybody kind of peeled out and, and Jay went off to start Amiga. Yeah. And uh, that, that should have been, the Amiga should have been Atari's next system, would have been, had Warner not pissed everybody off. Well, you were working on a system called um, Cosmos as well. Um, that looked really innovative. What was, what was that for people that are not aware of it and what happened to it? What was it, its eventual fate? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, before Warner kicked in, I was part of the executive staff, and we worked together as a team uh, with Joe Nolan, uh, uh, Steve Bristow, all the other vice presidents, and we, you know, worked together as friends and as a team. Uh, but when Warner kicked in, that and, and Ray Cassar took over, that all went away, and it was no more fun. So, and Nolan, most of the guys had left, and I felt a lot of allegiance to Atari, uh, my baby. I felt like so I'm not going to walk away from this. Yet, and I figured, you know, I'm going to go back and build something uh, that's innovative and new, and uh, we'll get it out there. Okay. And uh, so I, for other reasons, I, what the hell, just chose holography. It's not the way you're supposed to do things. You don't start with the technology and then figure out what kind of game can I make out of it. That's not, you really figure what kind of a game do I want, and then what technology do I need. But I did it backwards for the hell of it. And, uh, uh, what, what Ray had sort of said was if we could come up with a cartridge-based game system, you know, like the VCS, but only at half the price, half the cost of the VCS. Well, a cartridge in the VCS has one component in it, <laughs> one chip. So how do you cost reduce that, right? Well, you get rid of the chip altogether. <laughs> and uh, so we came up with this idea for holography. We had to actually invent the technology, the process for making embossed holograms. Uh, we did that, and uh, we didn't bother to patent it. Uh, and then uh, that got stolen by American Banknote eventually and shows up on MasterCards and stuff like that. But that's another fun story. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, and, and, and we had this thing all designed it. So it was a holographic, it was a game with a cartridge you put in a little, it was a little led game 
uh, an array of LEDs uh, that peaked, that shined through a hologram. And so when you crash the spaceship, you'd see a hologram of a spaceship crashing on the moon and uh, a couple of different images on each hologram. And, uh, and it was very inexpensive to build. We tooled it up, solved all the problems. And, uh, and eventually, and we even, we could see marketing didn't want to build it. Uh, uh, it was really funny. I had to fight every constipated group in the company, manufacturing, marketing, I remember marketing, I had to do a business plan. Well, I've never done a business plan for anything before. Seemed to work okay, but okay, I did one, and it showed losing money the first year and making money the next year. And they said, well, you can't do that. You're going to lose money the first year. So I go, well, I stopped this idiocy. So I went and did another business plan for Project X, and it lost even more money. And uh, it was uh, it was actually the historical of us getting into the consumer business. <laughs> so I figured, oh, we shouldn't be in the consumer business. So I solved that one. I mean, it went on. Manufacturing said they were too busy to build it. I said, great, put that in writing, which he did. I then found a manufacturing company in Texas that would build it faster, cheaper, and better than he did. And uh, oh, all of a sudden, oh, I could build it now. Sure, sure. <laughs> that kind of, and eventually, eventually, there was nobody left to say no except Ray Kassar. And one day, he just said no. You know, this was after we'd taken it to the toy fair and sold a bunch of them. Uh, but anyway, so that was kind of sad, uh, you know, and I realized at that point that was the end of my career at App, at Atari uh, because uh, nothing was going to get released. I could see that they were afraid. It was really weird, you know, back in the days we didn't have any money and every time we introduced a new product, uh, we were risking the whole company on it. And uh, sometimes it didn't work. Most of the times it did. And uh, now we had enough money that this wouldn't have been, uh, you know, a pimple on our butt uh, if it failed. But now they were afraid to do it. I, I reasoned because uh, the, the embarrassment. What if they introduced a new product and it didn't be as good as the last one so nothing would get out? Well, I tried to explain to Ray Kassar that in the Silicon Valley – if you don't obsolete your own product, somebody else will. And uh, he didn't believe me. So, yeah. And then, uh, then we, I finally left. But yeah, it was they paid me big money not to show up. And uh, we were on a Nolan and I, and uh, like the top seven guys were on this, uh, basically on the beach. And uh, but uh, Nolan plotted and schemed, and and uh, we basically started just before the thing, the term ran out. You know, a bunch of companies. Uh, Nolan started uh, Sente and uh, a coin op company. I had a company that had cart. And so anyway, yeah, we so we kept busy and uh, we kind of thumbed our nose at Atari Warner. But it was sad to see it die when it did. So sad. Yeah. One of the companies was that was it Kuma. You did a um, reprogrammable yeah. video game cartridge and kiosk oh. systems. That was that was quite ahead of its time. Yeah. What happened was uh, back in the eighty two time frame, eighty eighty three. The big issue was SKU stock keeping units, and uh, video games were selling fast and furious. But the retailers didn't know. Nobody knew what game to to order to stock. And uh, so you got stuck with a lot of inventory that you couldn't move. And because there were all these people making games, some good, some bad, you didn't know. 
So this was a solution for that. This basically was a vending machine for software, kind of a unique because there was no online stuff at that point in time. So you could get it by a cartridge that had uh, a static RAM with a battery backup and download a game into it at a kiosk at a terminal or thing like a video game. And uh, uh, you basically, and then when you got tired of playing that game, you could go download another game to that cartridge. That was the plan, and we had it working. We had it sold in through Sears, and uh, in '83, all of a sudden, the market exploded, and that was the end of that company. Did you see the video game crash coming on the horizon? No, I, I, I don't think I did. I, 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 I saw. I saw that Atari's position was certainly going to fail, but I didn't see the whole the whole thing just stopping cold. Like, you know, like Warner assumed that that was it. It's like a hula hoop. The craze is over. That's the end of video games, which wasn't true. But yeah, I didn't see that happening that fast. That was remarkable. Well, are you much of a gamer yourself then, or are you just uh, into designing them, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm really an engineer, and uh, to me, the fun in Pong was to make, to make it work at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got to apply, I got to work with the cool technology, holography, and work with very smart people and solving interesting problems, but I wasn't much of a game player myself. No, I was, uh, I was more into uh, seeing how to make it work and how to solve some interesting technical problems. When I was reading articles about you know things that you've worked on, um, Al, there was one that I, I saw. You know, you spent some time at Apple, of course, um, and I read that you were involved in the creation of the FireWire standard. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, okay. yeah. What happened there was Apple hired me as an Apple Fellow in Advanced Technology Group, the research group, and uh, and, and there were a lot of very very bright people at, at, at Apple at that time. But uh, Jobs was gone. And, uh, and I was pretty good at promoting my ideas and whatnot. And I saw uh, a guy named Mike Tina was working on this project, which became Firewire. And uh, I thought it was really important to really have a wide bandwidth uh, connection uh, uh, for things. And so I helped promote it. Uh, I remember taking it to uh, exec staff. I was asked to do a command performance. All the Apple fellows were do a command performance in front of the exec staff. And I did part of what I did. I also, I was told I had to give a, explain high temperature superconductors. I don't know, probably if you're, if you're old enough to remember that, uh, but they thought somehow it was going to affect it. So anyway, I brought some liquid nitrogen with me, <laughs> a magnet and stuff and demoed that for them, but said, nah, it's, don't worry about it. But then I explained Firewire. And, and at the time, get a load of this. If you remember, Apple had this thing called Apple Talk, this Apple Talk network. Yes. And here I am with the exec staff of Apple Computer, and I told them, that, did you know that you guys are the leading network manufacturer in the world? No. Yeah, you won. You won a war you didn't even know you were in. The network is extremely important. And, uh, you know, they go, oh. But think about that. <laughs> think about that. These guys—they're winning a war anyway. So I said, "Look, it's important, and let's go to the next step." And that was—and and so I didn't really do the design, but I just saw how important it was, and I promoted it. And uh, eventually, but you give you an idea—the only got out of Apple. Apple wouldn't release it. They had to wait till Sony adopted it for cameras and and uh, uh, video cameras, and and uh, and then. 
they became one of the last people to adopt something that they invented, which was really <laughs> kind of sad, you know. Well, even that, you know, you think of Firewire, the fact that it kind of, you know, it, it spawned the digital video revolution. And obviously the first iPods used Firewire as well. So it was a very important yeah. technology at the time. Yeah, yeah, at the time. And then and later on, after that, I got to work on uh, what became MPEG. And uh, that's one of the more exciting things I did, I think. Uh, the idea of putting videos in the computer as a data type. Uh, and uh, I got to they, Larry Tesler, my boss, who recently passed, God bless him, uh, put together a team that uh, the finest computer scientists in the world, Ivan Sutherland and Bob Sproul and a few others, and and put me in charge of them. And I was scared out of my wits. And uh, But uh, we had this Cray computer that was being unused pretty much. And we played with it and did some fundamental work and really uh, helped get the standard going and get it out there. And the best thing that happened to it was uh, Jean-Louis Gasset and, and uh, Scully thought that it was a stupid idea to put videos in the computer you know, who'd do that, just like watching television. So they left me alone. They did not give me support from anything, thank God, because <laughs> I would have had marketing, legal. One of the things we did was we made sure we didn't patent anything, because <laughs> how can you have a standard for communication when it's a proprietary patent? It has to be open to the public, you know? Yeah, of course, the proprietary ones always just fell by the wayside. Yeah, so yeah. anyway... uh yeah, that was one of my bigger achievements. And I, at the time, we thought about how it would be used. I think we had a very good understanding. We thought. I never thought it would be so popular that the Internet would be clogged with puppy videos and kitten videos. But, hey, you know, unintended consequences. <laughs> well, Al, you know, talking about things that you're up to today, I mean, tell us about Hack the Future. I was reading about this event that you do regularly. Yeah, it's a little uh, gone silent now with the coronavirus yeah. thing. But, uh, yeah, I want, I want to give back. I felt that I benefited a great deal from mentoring, and uh, we you know, want to give it back. So uh, this group kind of formed ad hoc uh, to volunteer our time as a fairly successful technologist in the Valley to share that with uh, young people. So uh, every few months uh, we have a Hack the Future meetup in a museum or someplace that would be happy to host us. And we'd have like 100 young people, usually junior high school, uh, 10 to 15-year-old, pretty much just pre-high school, before the girls kicked in, you know. And uh, and we did. We discovered we couldn't teach. We don't want to teach uh, that, that we just go build something, just go do it and you know, make a web page, uh, solder a blinky board, uh, make a video game and you don't know how to do it. Well, we will show you. We will just lead you by the hand, step through step and mentor. And, you know, like one mentor for every two or three kids. And, uh, and the kids walk home with something that they have built and uh, knowledge they didn't have before. And hopefully we can aspire, you know, another, yet another nerd. <laughs> <laughs> when you see that passion in their eyes that you had at their age, it's, yeah, it must be very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When a kid, yeah, I, I work with a little soldering board I create, came up with and when you realize in a young person's face that they could they made something that uh worked you know uh they could take home and show off but nowadays i'm pretty much you know like i say recovering from my 
back stuff and mm-hmm. now we're locked down so nothing's going on but uh well talking about things that are happening this year um the obviously the atari name has been reborn many times but there's a new um vcs system that's meant to be coming out very soon i mean what do you think of like the the atari vcs being reborn and like a, a new generation of system uh, well i don't know i i am all for the the newer stuff i uh, I, I like the nostalgia uh, but I, I'm, I'm not I'm not too familiar with what they're what they're doing. I mean, it's really uh, Atari in name only. And uh, I hope they can come up with a good engineering group to actually put something innovative together. But I'm really not too up on what they're doing. It's good that it's still such an icon in the video games industry. I imagine that must make you quite proud. Yeah, it does. Um, it's really funny. You know, as you know, Nolan and I started at Ampex Corporation. Right. And you've heard of Ampex. Yeah. Right. Well, most people haven't, and I was really disappointed. They go to a, write something in a spell checker, you put Ampex in, and it bounces it, unknown word. But Atari, not a problem. And I'm thinking, like, wow, how things changed, you know? It just, it's remarkable that, uh, yeah, to the extent that Atari has become part of the American culture, uh, yeah, I never would have, <laughs> as a... Uh, a budding anarchist out of Berkeley. That was not in my plan at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, on behalf of Gamers Everywhere, thank you so much for all the work you did then that, you know, shaped our childhood and uh, spawned this entire industry. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Well, Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for letting me talk. Mm-hmm.